Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the GES Center's weekly seminar colloquium. And uh, before we begin, I just have a quick announcement to make, just to remind everybody that uh, we have these 3D glasses, oh, hold on, wait. and this, which is attached to it. You'll be able to get these outside the Hunt office door on the fifth floor, and I will I'm not there today, but I will be outside of Thomas Hall, 1545, uh, where you can, I will put them on the poster board outside just hanging. So if I'm not in, you can also just get it. So outside of Hunt and room 1545 for our March 16 colloquium with artist Rich Pell and his film, 3D film Codex Entropia. So please stop by and get them um, this week or next week. And it gives me great pleasure. I'm actually going to introduce our Ag Biofuse uh, student and a genetics PhD student, Andy Kerr, uh, who will be introducing her advisor, Ruben, our this week's speaker. So I'm gonna give it over to you, Andy. Oh, now I'm unmuted. Okay, sorry, it wouldn't let me unmute. Thanks, Don. Um, so I'm pleased to introduce you all to today's speaker, Dr. Ruben Rayan Alvarez. Um, I met Ruben about a year and a half ago when I was first considering moving to Raleigh, uh, and Ruben had so kindly offered to tell me about different industry positions in the area. Uh, so we got to talking about research during this, uh, namely maize, which you all hear about today. And I remember feeling so energized after this conversation that I actually decided to return to academia instead of industry and pursue my PhD under Ruben's guidance. Needless to say, I am incredibly grateful for the opportunity to study under Ruben, he is an excellent advisor, mentor, and researcher, and is perhaps one of the most willing to help people I've met in academia so far. And this probably won't be a surprise to you if you've had a chance to talk to him. Uh, beyond mentorship, Ruben has a really diverse background as a researcher. He got his PhD in plant biology at the Ala de Experimental Station in Zaragoza, Spain. He did a postdoc at the same university studying iron deficiency and later took another postdoctoral position at the Carnegie Institute for Science at Stanford where he studied new methods to visualize root system architecture and gene expression in plants growing in soil. Following these postdoctoral positions, Ruben started his lab at the National Laboratory for Genomics, or of Genomics for Biodiversity in Iroquois, Mexico, where he became immersed in maize as a study system, most appropriately while working in the Center of Diversity for Maize, uh, which he'll tell us more about today. In 2019, Ruben moved his lab here at NC State to the Molecular and Structural Biochemistry Department, where he's continued to develop a really unique and collaborative research program that investigates the genetics, evolution, and metabolism of maize adaptation. So without further ado, I'll pass things off to Ruben and let him tell us a little bit more about what it's like, as he aptly puts, to drink from the fire hose of maize diversity. Take it away, Ruben. Hi, uh, Andy. I didn't know you were introducing me. Uh, that, was, that was very, very nice. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, uh, it really, it, it's easy to be a PI with uh, uh, students like you. Um, right, let me share my screen. Um, can you all see me, see the screen? Yes. All right, great. Um, yeah, I'm still processing that super nice introduction from Andy. <laughs> uh, so uh, today I'll, I'll be talking about um, the, uh, how the maize became to be uh, this uh, wonderfully uh, diverse uh, species. And then I'll, uh, I'll touch a little bit on, on how uh, uh, we as uh, researchers and the society and breeders are trying to take advantage uh, of this uh, phenomenal uh, diversity. And then uh, at the end, uh, I'll touch a little bit on, on uh, the issues associated with uh, uh, intellectual uh, property of uh, taking uh, advantage and, and benefiting uh, from this uh, diversity. So uh, a little bit of a, a super short introduction. Um, as uh, you may know, uh, maize was domesticated uh, in the Southwest of uh, of Mexico from uh, Teosinte, Teosinte parviglumis, and uh, very quickly it occupied uh, other regions uh, of Mexico, including uh, 
highland areas uh, of Mexico, where uh, it received uh, significant uh, introgression from uh, another teosinte that we know as uh, Teosinte Mexicana, it had already adapted to these uh, uh, island regions uh, uh, in Mexico. So uh, this is uh, this uh, uh, cross pollination of uh, wild relatives uh, of maize and maize is still uh, happening. It's not something that occurred uh, uh, in the past. And this is a nice picture to show this. What you are looking at here uh, is the it's a corn uh, field. You can see the corn in the in the front of the picture. It's in the border of uh, the states of uh, Jalisco and Michoacan. And uh, up there in the uh, in the hill, you see a super nice population uh, of uh, hybrid uh, Mexicana uh, parvi glumis. Um, a, a population of uh, uh, hybrid uh, Mexicana parvi glumis. Uh, there is quite a bit of uh, cross-pollination uh, between that population uh, and uh, the, the, the land-raised corn that is, uh, that is growing there. But uh, in, in the back of, uh, of that field, there's actually uh, hybrid uh, commercial uh, corn uh, being grown uh, from, uh, from Cortiva, uh, uh, et cetera. Uh, so uh, I really like uh, that uh, picture because uh, within 200 meters, you have a snapshot of uh, maize uh, domestication, uh, expansion, and improvement. Uh, these uh, wild relatives, uh, they can grow uh, right next to, uh, to cornfields, uh, but you can also often see them uh, right next to, uh, uh, to roads. Uh, this is a nearby uh, Langebio, uh, where, I, where I started my, uh, my lab. And there's another example there in the middle, you can see that uh, little plant that's uh, Teosinte Mexicana uh, growing in, the, uh, in a pretty, uh, 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 urban area, as you can see, right? So uh, uh, part of the uh, diversity uh, of maize uh, comes from uh, this uh, continuous uh, cross-pollination uh, with uh, uh, wild relatives. And I'll touch a little bit more now on the uh, basic uh, biology of maize that make uh, maize so, uh, so, so diverse. So uh, in a typical, uh, uh, in a maize plant, you have uh, the, the female and male uh, reproductive uh, structures uh, separate. So we have the, uh, the tassel at the top of the, the plant uh, that produces uh, pollen. And then we have uh, the ear uh, with those six that you can see there that uh, receives that uh, pollen. So now uh, in a typical uh, cornfield, the, uh, the, the, the tassel uh, will start uh, shedding, uh, shedding pollen. Uh, this pollen uh, is transported uh, by the wind and a single uh, uh, plant can uh, pollinate uh, many, many uh, different uh, female plants, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that pollen then, uh, as I said, lands in the, uh, in the, in the, in the silks. Uh, each one of these silks is uh, connected uh, to uh, an embryo uh, on the ear that will uh, give rise to uh, a kernel. Then uh, uh, maize uh, has, uh, has uh, uh, an average uh, uh, genome, uh, genome size um, of 2.2 uh, uh, gigabases, but most of that uh, genome is composed of uh, a transportable uh, elements. So we can compare here uh, at the bottom, uh, the gene and transportable uh, element uh, content uh, of a typical uh, one megabase of a, a maize genome with uh, another uh, model species, Arabidopsis, uh, um, that is, uh, that has a much smaller uh, genome. So you can see that in the same one megabase, the Arabidopsis genome has a much, much higher uh, content of uh, genes uh, than maize does. Uh, most of the maize genome is made of uh, transportable elements. So these transportable elements, uh, as you know, can uh, jump uh, from one place uh, to the other, and that contributes to, uh, uh, to, uh, to maize diversity. Uh, this has, uh, as, as you know, uh, um, Barbara McClintock uh, study uh, these uh, transposable uh, elements and 
she was the first one to recognize how important they were to uh, affect uh, and induce a new uh, phenotypic uh, uh, diversity. And there are uh, some uh, recent theories uh, looking at a very uh, original way of uh, how uh, spotable uh, elements can form uh, a genomic uh, ecosystem uh, within the uh, maize genome. I think it's very, very interesting. So because of all of this, uh, in a typical uh, uh, maize uh, cornfield, if we compare uh, two random uh, maize plants, we'll see that they have higher uh, diversity than if we compare uh, chimpanzee uh, with, uh, uh, with a human being, right? Another thing that I wanted to, uh, uh, to mention in a relationship with uh, uh, with maize diversity, is the the, the personable size of uh, uh, the maize uh, plant. So it almost has like a human-like uh, structure. Uh, this has been this has facilitated the work of uh, maize geneticists uh, because it basically literally allows you to uh, walk uh, through the field and observe eye to eye the uh, phenotypes that you're interested in and that you're uh, selecting on, right? So this happens, uh, this is very useful for maize geneticists, but also for, uh, uh, for maize uh, farmers uh, as well. Uh, and then uh, the, the maize uh, ear um, is just such also the right size for uh, our, uh, our, our hand, right? And I can, uh, honestly, I cannot think of a better way of uh, transporting uh, genetic diversity than a maize ear. So you can harvest it, you can put it in your, in your, in your backpack and then uh, move it uh, somewhere else. And actually, uh, folks are very attached to, uh, uh, to, their, uh, to their corn and uh, wherever they want, they, they go, they, they, they wanna bring uh, their corn uh, with them. This is uh, yet another uh, recent story of uh, uh, African uh, re refugees trying to uh, uh, grow corn uh, here in the US. And, and Andy has done uh, her master's uh, looking at uh, gen the genetic changes of these uh, imported uh, corn in these uh, uh, refugee and uh, immigrant uh, communities. Another example, of a small uh, a milpa farm that Nora uh, Jim and I uh, visited uh, last uh, last May of a Guatemalan uh, immigrant uh, here in, in uh, uh, nearby uh, Raleigh that is trying to uh, uh, grow the same type of uh, corn that uh, he was used to uh, grow uh, in his uh, community uh, uh, back in uh, Guatemala. Uh, personally, I, I grew up uh, 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 growing uh, uh, land races of, uh, of corn as well. Uh, I am uh, very excited that I was able to get my hands uh, on this uh, land race that we used to grow in our uh, village uh, in, in Asturias. And hopefully this summer, I'll uh, prepare this typical dish uh, that is uh, basically polenta uh, made out of uh, these uh, land races. So uh, people like to take uh, their corn with them. Um, and uh, that uh, led since domestication to uh, the uh, relatively uh, quick uh, expansion uh, of corn throughout uh, uh, the Americas and then later on uh, into, uh, into Europe. So uh, today, uh, maize is the crop species that has the widest uh, geographical uh, adaptation. And uh, it has uh, many, many, many uh, uh, uses, uh, many uh, industrial uh, uses. We know a lot of that here in the US, uh, but, then, but then also very, uh, a lot of uh, very different uh, culinary uh, uses. Just in Mexico, uh, we know that there are at least between 500 and 600 different dishes made out of corn. And uh, we always like to say that uh, corn goes through uh, two levels of selection in terms of where, uh, how can you adapt corn to grow to different environmental uh, conditions? But then there is a second round of selection that occurs at the kitchen, right? You can imagine 
the physical chemical properties of uh, kernels that are used to uh, make a typical uh, tortilla for a taco in the left are, are going to be very different than uh, the properties that you need to uh, make a guarache, this uh, big uh, tortilla uh, light that you can see uh, on the right. Uh, so because of that, um, uh, we uh, recognize uh, many different types of uh, uh, land races uh, across uh, across the world. Uh, I'm showing here just uh, uh, some examples. We can see Piting Gallo uh, at the top uh, left. This is a popcorn. Uh, then we have here some uh, sweet corns from uh, Peru. Uh, Cuban flints, number three. Uh, Tucupeño, number four. Uh, and this is a uh, conical uh, uh, number uh, number five and uh, some uh, 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 corn uh, from uh, Peru that is uh, used as um, as chocolate as the kind of corn, right? So uh, we can uh, again. Uh, there are many uh, a lot of uh, different uh, uh, races, land races. Uh, uh, across uh, mainly uh, uh, Latin uh, Latin America, and these uh, uh, land races, uh, uh, if we look at the, the number of uh, accessions uh, that are uh, in different uh, germ platforms across the world, uh, is sum up up to uh, three hundred thousand uh, accessions now. Uh, you can see a single uh, land race uh, can have uh, uh, multiple uh, uh, accessions. And each one of those accessions, because uh, of this uh, open uh, pollination, is going to be uh, different, uh, differently uh, genetically. So uh, these are all in uh, what we call uh, ex situ uh, germ pattern banks. Uh, not all of them uh, are uh, available uh, for, the, uh, general, uh, for the general public. And uh, there is uh, a lot of uh, hope uh, that uh, within uh, all these different accessions, we can find uh, accessions that can improve uh, the nutritional value uh, of corn, uh, that can in increase uh, uh, tolerance uh, to, towards uh, abiotic stresses such as cold, uh, tolerance uh, against uh, diseases such as star spot complex, uh, nitrogen induced efficiency. Uh, Striga, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there is that, that uh, phenomenal uh, uh, potential there to, uh, to, uh, to bring in uh, beneficial alleles uh, for all of these uh, biotic uh, and abiotic uh, stresses. So that's what we call uh, uh, ex situ uh, collections of uh, germ plasm that uh, currently, uh, we uh, we can also talk about uh, in situ um, uh, in situ uh, conversation of these uh, uh, phenomenal uh, diversity. So this is a really really interesting paper that was published uh, three years ago uh, by uh, Mauricio uh, Bellon uh, and colleagues, uh, an expert on uh, maize uh, diversity uh, in, in Mexico. And they report phenom the phenomenal work that uh, Mexican campesinos, small uh, farm uh, holders, are doing to uh, conserve, to actively conserve these uh, uh, phenomenal uh, diversity. So they talk about uh, numbers that are staggering: uh, uh, 500 uh, million uh, plant mother plants uh, contribute to the next generation with their standing, uh and then uh, genetic diversity uh, and rare alleles. Um, a lot of people say that, have said that uh, in a single village of, for example, uh, Oaxaca, there is a much greater uh, diversity actively being produced and conserved than in the whole state of uh, Iowa, for example. So uh, this is just an examination of uh, these uh, land races uh, of, uh, of uh, genetic diversity uh, of maize. This is just a snapshot of uh, near uh, 3,000 uh, ingrates uh, from the Ames uh, Prime Introduction uh, collection. So you can see a great uh, 
diversity. But it's important to point here that the breeding pool of uh, the United States is, is built uh, by uh, these uh, non-stiff stock and stiff stock uh, inbreds that are marked there uh, more or less in that uh, in that circle. Uh, so uh, the combination of uh, stiff stock and uh, non-stiff stock, we have here uh, probably the best uh, well-known uh, stiff stock B73 and most of the non-stiff stock uh, inbreds. Uh, when you uh, cross them, it gives you this uh, uh, phenomenal uh, hybrid uh, bigger and uh, this combination of these two breeding pools have been uh, really, really uh, successful uh, here in the US. You've probably seen uh, this figure uh, many times, but uh, when uh, folks switch from uh, open pollinated uh, variety, varieties to uh, the development of uh, hybrids, uh, the yields increase uh, uh, very significantly and continue to uh, increase. So uh, yes, uh, the genetic diversity uh, of, um, of uh, the corn that is, uh, the hybrid corn that is grown uh, in the U.S. is it's a small, but it is very uh, productive. Uh, there, I mentioned examples of uh, what's happening in the in the U.S., but these um, uh, bottlenecks of, uh, of uh, diversity when developing uh, breeding programs also happens uh, in, uh, in, uh, in tropical uh, breeding programs. Uh, for example, uh, Tupeño uh, is uh, one of the uh, land races that gave rise to some of the most successful uh, inbreds uh, uh, that, is, that are uh, used by uh, CIMIT. This is another example, uh, a single uh, land race from the highlands of Ecuador was first introduced uh, by CIMIT uh, in their uh, Eastern Highland, uh, Eastern Africa uh, breeding uh, program. And now most of the uh, corn that is grown in this uh, area uh, has at least uh, part of this uh, single uh, land race. At the same time, this also shows the tremendous potential of a single uh, land race. So because uh, 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 these uh, phenomenal uh, uh, genetic uh, diversity because of uh, multiple elements, also because of uh, the, uh, the very short uh, linkage uh, disequilibrium uh, of corn, most of the uh, traits uh, that we're interested in uh, in corn are highly uh, uh, polygenic. So uh, despite that, there are some successive stories of uh, large effect uh, alleles that have been uh, introduced from uh, exotic uh, germplasm, and many have to do with uh, resistance to uh, diseases. Uh, another uh, interesting example, uh, and this is uh, uh, work uh, by a uh, former uh, graduate student of the crop science uh, program, and Dr. Uh, Mayor Goodman, is uh, the use of these uh, uh, gametophyte uh, factors that block uh, pollen. So this is something that was known by popcorn uh, breeders for a while. And the work of uh, uh, Mayor Goodman has been to uh, identify new sources of these uh, block of, uh, pollen uh, blockers that can then be used by uh, organic farmers to prevent uh, contamination from uh, genetically engineered uh, corn. So it's another uh, case of uh, a big effect, if you want to call it uh, that way, uh, introduction of um, exotic corn into uh, uh, the US uh, breeding for, uh, for uh, but as I said, uh, most of the traits are, are highly polygenic and are controlled by small uh, effect alleles. Uh, and uh, a lot of these are not, uh, their effects are so small that individually they are not worth uh, integrating, uh, editing, or tracking uh, in a breeding uh, program. We still study them uh, using um, association mapping, uh, GWAS, uh, et cetera. But so far, 
uh, it has been difficult to uh, to translate those uh, results from uh, a GIGOS and association uh, mapping into uh, a cultivar uh, development. One of the main uh, issues of uh, introducing uh, tropical corn uh, into uh, uh, US uh, breeding uh, programs is that it's, uh, tropical corn is, is photoperiodic sensitive. So when uh, tropical pour, uh, corn is put into uh, our uh, latitudes uh, where the days are longer uh, during, during the summer, uh, uh, that corn is confused and it keeps growing and growing and growing because it doesn't see the time uh, uh, to flower, right? So uh, uh, work again for, uh, by uh, Mayor Goodman uh, has been uh, tried, has been uh, trying to uh, introduce um, the tropical uh, material, uh, mainly by uh, directly uh, selecting or uh, doing back process of uh, tropical uh, material into temperate uh, adapted uh, corn, with the idea of uh, bringing large swaths of uh, possible uh, beneficial uh, alleles into uh, uh, into the U.S. Uh, another uh, interesting uh, project uh, along these lines is the Genetic Enhancement uh, Program uh, that is led uh, where uh, NC State and USDA uh, contribute here in, uh, um, uh, in Raleigh through Matt, uh, Matt Krakowski and uh, Major uh, Goodman. And the idea here uh, is to uh, cross uh, tropical accessions into uh, proprietary inbreds from uh, companies that then are uh, uh, back cross again of self uh, to uh, uh, then uh, develop uh, inbred. Uh, work, uh, uh, as I said, uh, another way to, um, to adapt this tropical material is to directly select for, uh, uh, for early flowering and, and less photoperiodic sensitivity in, in tropical populations. And this is something uh, uh, that uh, Nicole Chouquet uh, is working on in the lab of, uh, of Jean Holland. You can see here uh, different uh, generations of a tropical synthetic uh, maize population that have been uh, selected for uh, less photoperiodic sensitivity. Uh, Destiny uh, Tyson, a student that is working uh, with uh, uh, with me and, and with and with him uh, is interested on uh, uh, figuring out if uh, by uh, knocking out the uh, uh, genes that are involved in this uh, photoperiodic uh, adaptation, uh, we can speed up uh, uh, this process. Uh, from uh, uh, a pure um, a research point of view, uh, what we have uh, tried, we and many others have tried to do is to develop these uh, uh, introgression uh, populations where we capture uh, some of these uh, land race uh, diversity and we cross it into a known uh, a genetic uh, inbred to then uh, uh, sequence and uh, be able to uh, capture those uh, possible rare uh, alleles uh, from uh, land race individuals. And this is a line of work that uh, Andy uh, is currently pursuing. Now, uh, uh, I said that we have uh, many uh, uh, genetic uh, resources and uh, these days uh, we are very uh, lucky that uh, we're basically are uh, inundated by uh, newer and, and, and better uh, genomic resources uh, to study this uh, genetic uh, diversity. This is just a couple of, uh, of big projects that are uh, looking at this uh, by uh, sequencing uh, large uh, uh, numbers of uh, uh, inbreds, uh, developing new uh, assemblies, and then uh, coming up with uh, strategies to uh, capture what we uh, now call the pan genome. Uh, so uh, before we uh, get into the uh, into the discussion, I want to uh, touch uh, a little bit on what are the implications of uh, this uh, maize diversity with uh, intellectual uh, uh, property. So SIMIT uh, uh, is is one of the uh, largest uh, germplasm germplasm uh, banks uh, in the world. Uh, 
definitely probably the best germplasm are distributing uh, 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 maize and, and wheat seeds uh, across the world. And uh, they provide a standard uh, material uh, transfer agreement that basically uh, gives you the freedom to use uh, that material uh, for uh, research and, and, and auto-consumption if you are a small uh, farmer. If you then uh, develop a, a, an inbred line uh, from uh, that material, uh, you are required to pay a small uh, percentage of, uh, of your uh, profits that then go to the FAO. Uh, there are similar standards in other public uh, programs uh, like uh, uh, NC State. And um, the thing is that uh, the, the, the big companies, because they have such uh, their own uh, very well-developed uh, breeding uh, programs, even though this doesn't seem like a lot of money, uh, the uh, the whole uh, bureaucracy of uh, signing these uh, standard material transfer agreements, et cetera, uh, have not played out well uh, uh, with uh, the adoption uh, of these uh, material uh, by big uh, companies. So there are a lot of uh, critics of this, uh, of this uh, model. Um, several uh, folks suggest that it would be better to just let the companies pay a, a one-off uh, uh, deposit if they request a uh, seat that then they could use however they want uh, into their uh, into their program. Um, in principle, all the uh, if you uh, collect seed from uh, uh, any country that has signed the the, the Nagoya uh, protocol, you should comply with uh, with that protocol. And now. Uh, uh, through the great time, uh, I've heard that uh, the Nagoya protocol uh, is uh, considering to include into the protocol uh, also uh, genome uh, sequences. So you can uh, imagine how with this phenomenal uh, maize diversity that might uh, play, right? Uh, and I wanted to uh, use the example of um, this story that came out uh, two and a half years ago, um, researchers from uh, UC Davis and uh, in collaboration with uh, uh, Mark, the, the, the chocolate uh, uh, company, uh, they work with uh, a small uh, community uh, in the Sierra Mixe uh, in Mexico. And they uh, identify these uh, landrace uh, oloton that produce this phenomenal amount of uh, mucilage. And uh, they were able to uh, identify nitrogen-fixing uh, bacteria that uh, thrive into, into this uh, mucilage. And they found that the nitrogen fixed by that bacteria, those bacteria, uh, are, is then uh, acquired uh, by corn. So this led to a very, very uh, optimistic um, uh, reports uh, in popular uh, in popular uh, media, just an article from the Atlantic. Uh, this is another one from the uh, Smithsonian. Uh, it was uh, interesting to see how uh, people would uh, report uh, on this. Uh, you got the impression that this was something uh, a trade that was uh, unique for uh, uh, of that particular. Uh, land rates grown uh, in that particular uh, community. Uh, for those of us that have uh, grown uh, corn uh, in the field and have had a nursery uh, using um, a tropical uh, material, uh, we know that this uh, production of uh, mucilage uh, is not unique uh, from that uh, land rate. So this is yet another uh, a land race from our field. I think this one was from uh, from uh, Peru. Um, so this uh, gave rise to a, a very interesting, uh, um, a very inter very interesting uh, discussion. So uh, 
the researcher from UC Davis uh, uh, published uh, this work. Uh, they show that yes, uh, there's nitrogen fixing bacteria that live in that uh, in that uh, in the mucilage that is produced by that uh, land race uh, spin-off uh, company who was created uh, using the in intellectual uh, property that was uh, developed uh, from this. Uh, it's known that they started doing this before the Nagoya protocol was signed, but they signed um, a private agreement with the uh, that local community where they had been uh, studying. Uh, so this opens uh, a lot of uh, interesting uh, uh, discussions about um, yeah, intellectual uh, property, who owns that uh, intellectual uh, property, who should pay for it, and who should uh, receive uh, money uh, from it. So with that, I just uh, wanna, uh, before we, again, before we uh, go into the discussion, just uh, ask some questions. I don't have the answers, uh, but here they go. Um, so how can we maintain a genetic diversity and improve uh, campesinos' lives? So uh, in this article, they talk about how uh, the, the, the corn being produced by these campesinos can, can fulfill the, the nutritional needs of their campesinos and uh, up to 55 million people uh, in, in Mexico. I ask, uh, should the campesinos uh, be happy to feed themselves or should they be making some extra money so they can not only feed themselves, but uh, maybe send their kids to uh, uh, to college, for example. Uh, you remember uh, Martha Wilcox that talked in this forum uh, some time ago. She talked about how uh, creating um, uh, markets that demand uh, particular uh, land races can be a good way uh, for these uh, at campesinos to uh, make a profit, then we should ask if uh, a particular land race makes uh, a profit, should uh, the campesinos stop growing the other uh, uh, land races that they typically uh, would grow uh, in their uh, local uh, communities? There are some uh, interesting uh, examples uh, using uh, a participative uh, uh, breeding, where uh, collections of, of uh, uh, land races from different uh, farmers are, are put together uh, in pools, and then uh, typical um, selection uh, of uh, using uh, year to row, uh, half sieves, uh, and improve. Uh, certain uh, varieties, and then these varieties can be uh, commercialized. This is one example uh, from uh, INEA, which is the USDA from uh, from Peru. Uh, these uh, varieties can then be sold as uh, synthetic populations, so then farmers can, uh, can uh, keep growing the same uh, variety from one year to the next without having to uh, buy new, new hybrid seed. The other question is, Again, who owns the intellectual property of traits that are highly polygenic uh, by nature? For example, is the production of that mucilage that I showed before. Uh, that's not uh, unique from that particular uh, village. It is not unique from, uh, from that particular uh, land race, and the particular land race is grown throughout several states in Mexico. So who owns that uh, intellectual uh, property? And then the next question is uh, who should pay for it, right? Uh, these questions of intellectual property are, are, are much more clear, for example, in a typical uh, breeding uh, company that develops an uh, inbred, right, with a name uh, on it. Um, but, and then if another company wants to use it, they can pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the waters are, are much more uh, muddy um, in these other cases. The question is, is genetically engineered corn a risk or, a, or an opportunity for maize diversity? If you've been following the news in Mexico, uh, the current uh, uh, government uh, in Mexico wants to pass 
uh, a law that would um, that would ban uh, genetically uh, engineer uh, corn uh, in the country, with uh, the uh, final objective of protecting uh, uh, local uh, land races. How is that gonna be? Uh, how is that gonna play out? It's still uh, a little bit of a mystery uh, for me. Uh, we've been uh, told that uh, in the future we will be able to um, learn from all this uh, phenomenal uh, diversity and take multiple uh, small effect uh, alleles and um, using uh, multiplexing uh, genetic engineering, tune them very carefully to produce uh, the final result that, that we want. Uh, that's what uh, companies like uh, Inari, et cetera, uh, uh, promise uh, uh, to do. Uh, I have my doubts that that's uh, going to be a, a reality. But there are other applications, interesting applications of uh, uh, genetic uh, engineering. And this is just an, uh, an article that just came out last, uh, last week, whereby uh, editing uh, the promoter of uh, this uh, gene that is involved in determining the number of kernels and meristem size, you can uh, generate uh, new um, uh, genetic uh, diversity. So this application of uh, genetic engineering, at least in the case of, uh, of corn, I think has uh, more uh, future than uh, trying to fill in uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, alleles that might affect uh, a, a particular thing. And then uh, finally, what is our role as uh, public uh, servant uh, uh, researchers? Who do we serve? Uh, if you remember uh, back last year, uh, Louis gave a, a very interesting uh, talk in this uh, in this forum, and um, it, it made me think. It made me think uh, uh, about a lot of things. Uh, I think in the case of genetic uh, uh, engineering. Me and others uh, have written uh, articles uh, helping how uh, good uh, uh, genetic engineering uh, can be uh, for uh, for society. But then you also start thinking: is who are who are we serving? Who benefits from uh, uh, from this uh, technology? Does uh, society general uh, benefits are uh, private companies? Uh, benefiting, and we as public servants are, are doing the work that already they should be uh, doing. One of the authors of this uh, paper is uh, Luis Estrella, and he did his PhD uh, in the lab of uh, Mar van Montagu, where uh, they uh, first uh, were able to use uh, agrobacterium to uh, make uh, genetic transformation. And what Luis told me when they were doing this, they truly believe that this was something that could be, technology could be something that uh, could be used freely by uh, any farmer uh, across, the, uh, across the world. Well, history has told us that uh, only a few companies that can pass all the regulations can take advantage of, uh, uh, of this uh, technology. So uh, should we, uh, uh, who are we serving, right? Again, are we, um, are we uh, helping uh, big act, um, or are we uh, talking with uh, small farmers that will tell you that they are not particularly interested on uh, on using uh, uh, this uh, this technology? Uh, they want to uh, continue uh, growing their uh, their corn and finding uh, the right markets uh, for that uh, for that corn, and eventually. Again, improve their lives and, and their lives of uh, their, uh, their children. So uh, uh, with that, uh, I think more than drinking, uh, we are uh, drowning from maize uh, diversity uh, fire, hole, fire hose. Uh, and uh, I hope that this is uh, good material to start a little bit of a discussion right now. Thank you. Thank you, Ruben. Thank you, Dr. Rajan Alvarez, for that um, eye-opening talk. 
Um, you should talk about this current state of native maize varieties breeding and how researchers are using them to understand maize genetic diversity. Um, you also talk about how agriculturally important uh, it is to maintain food security in developing countries. And I would also stress um, that it's a uh, uh, very culturally important, as you, you mentioned earlier on uh, in your presentation. And um, I, I came to NC State uh, two years ago from living in a small town in Mexico for about six years. And I can definitely attest to how important corn and corn products are in one's uh, daily life. Uh, you eat so many different corn products there, uh, and it's just a part of the culture um, from different varieties, from different time of the corn's life when you use it. So I uh, I think this is a really important uh, topic to talk about and, and seeing how different sceneries you can see in the morning, people carrying their bags of tortilla, at nighttime people eating their tamales or going to buy tamales and tamales or pozole or other products. Um, so these questions you start to ask about IPR, um, I think these are really great questions to start asking. So thank you very much for your for your presentation. And I see that we have some um, questions coming on the side in the chat, and we only have about ten minutes. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get to um, Anastasia Bodner. And if anyone else wants to ask a question, please do raise your hand. So Anastasia asks, don't all mo modern corn varieties or all Non-local germoplasm pose a risk to maize diversity, both by replacing land races and through gene flow with subsequent selection. Yeah, that, that's a good comment, uh, uh, Anastasia. And I think that uh, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on that uh, at the end of the uh, of the uh, of the talk when I said that, say for example, that we have a particular run race that uh, finds uh, a niche market. Uh, that makes it uh, very successful. So, uh, and that and that typically that land race would be uh, grown together uh, with other uh, land races uh, in, in a community. But then, if that land race becomes more uh, profitable, who are we to tell the <laughs> the small farmer to uh, grow something that is going to be less profitable for them? Uh, I think that there is, uh, there has to be a, a balance there. Great, and there is a... Dominic, so Dominic, uh, Dominic says that they had no idea that the diversity was such a fire hose. How often does the public material get into hybrid production from the big uh, companies? Um, so there isn't a lot of data uh, on this, uh, Dominic. Uh, obviously, uh, the big companies are not going to tell you how much of this uh, material makes it into their uh, into their program. Um, usually, when you integrate this uh, tropical uh, material, there is a, at least here in the U.S. there is a, there is a there is a yield penalty. Uh, so uh, companies uh, make these uh, economic analysis that I think are very interesting about. What's the, the right amount of uh, diversity that you should uh, uh, keep into your uh, your breeding uh, uh, program uh, to maybe be able to face uh, a new disease that uh, that, that uh, might affect the area where you uh, grow your uh, uh, hybrids and the penalty yield that uh, you have to assume when you introduce uh, some of these uh, varieties. From, for example, from uh, Mayor uh, Goodman's uh, program. Uh, some of the uh, tropical adapted uh, uh, lines uh, that he has developed. Uh, I think, I don't know if Jim is here, but I think uh, they have some data saying that 2%, 3% of, uh, uh, of the breeding, uh, breeding programs uh, is coming from, uh, from this uh, tropical adapted uh, material. Uh, so, uh, Fred, uh, yes, uh, I don't know if everyone can, can, can read uh, the questions, but uh, Fred says that here's a slide where- oh, Before you go to Fred's, sorry, Ruben, I see that Nora Han has her okay. hand up and she also started to answer the, that previous question by Dominic or made a comment about it. Nora, I'm going to unmute you and then we could get to Fred's. Okay, okay well, I guess um, my, my general comment here is Lovely to see you again, Ruben, and uh, great talk. Um, hey, um, 
So, um, you know, one of the aspects uh, that obviously you didn't touch on, but I think we have to kind of bring in the role of the Mexican federal government in um, both subsidizing certain kinds of agriculture and not subsidizing other kinds of agriculture. Uh, so I just think it's important for the room to know that um, following NAFTA 1994, prior to NAFTA in 1994, Mexico uh, subsidized smallholder agriculture in a number of ways that also effectively supported the kind of diversity Ruben has outlaid today. Um, and all of that went away with NAFTA. Uh, so part of the discussion of who owns uh, the germplasmic germplasm gets tied up into larger conversations about what is the role of government in agriculture, uh, and that kind of relates to Dominic's question. So I answered that I'm not really sure how much transfer actually takes place, Dominic, but I do know that um, in a number of areas, including, for example, through the um, uh, environmental protection and Mexico's version of the entire environmental protection agencies, they track what kinds of land races are present where, and they do collect samples and they do maintain databases of these samples. Uh, and I just don't know to what extent those databases actually funnel genetic material into the companies. But I do know that it's accessible to them. I think Fred was actually in the room when we were talking to uh, federal agents about that. And then of course, uh, some things are available to SIMIT through Simit as well, but I just don't know how, how much that happens in reality. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, we, we have uh, good databases uh, of uh, environmental variables. Uh, we have uh, um, nice uh, databases about the geographical uh, origin of the different uh, land races. Uh, something that in our group uh, uh, we are interested in is, is how we uh, combine this type of uh, uh, data. This is something that um, uh, Jim's uh, group is also uh, interested and uh, is related with uh, this broader idea of how we use uh, uh, environmental uh, variables, uh, future uh, climate uh, models uh, in in conjunction with uh, uh, generic uh, uh, information to uh, breed uh, the material that is adapted to future uh, uh, environmental uh, uh, conditions. Um, uh, again, how can we uh, incorporate all that, uh, uh, all the information that we have uh, uh, about uh, land races adapting to their local uh, uh, environment into uh, more modern uh, breeding uh, programs is, uh, is a subject of uh, intensive uh, research right now. Um, yeah, touching on, uh, on Fred's uh, question, uh, uh, maybe you wanna say the question out loud, Fred, or? or well, I can read it. So, so uh, Fred said that, uh, Sir's like we're increasing maize yield associated with hybrid maize breeding. Uh, there has been an argument that high yield could have been achieved without the use of uh, hybrids if hybrid vigor is not just due to overdominance. Could you comment on the current thinking about this? It would make maize seed less expensive. Yes, uh, you're right, Brett. Um, I think that uh, my personal opinion is that uh, hybrid uh, breeding has been so successful because it's very profitable. Not the fact that you can continue, you, every year you can sell hybrid seed and the uh, seed companies have to uh, produce, they produce newer seeds, supposedly better and better uh, each year. It's such a great business model, right? And that's why uh, in other uh, species where maybe it doesn't make um, that much sense, such as wheat, the, 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 there, is be, there is a push to uh, develop uh, uh, hybrid uh, material. Uh, with the current uh, tools in genomic selection, etc., could we achieve the same um, uh, the same deals with uh, synthetic uh, populations where uh, farmers would not need to uh, to buy the seed every year, um, I don't know, but it's 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 a good uh, thought uh, exercise. 
Um, Noah. Uh, yeah, in the case of releasing GM and uh, AGE corn varieties in Mexico, how do they deal with the possibility of uh, transgene escape into land race and teosinte uh, uh, populations? In quite a bit of research, um, uh, scanning um, possible uh, transgene escapes into uh, teosintes and, and land races, folks uh, have found that that is the case. That doesn't matter. I have my doubts. Um, you have Mayor, Mayor Goodman, says that he is no worried at all about Teosinte acquiring uh, glyphosate uh, and resistance. Uh, I think that Teosinte and natural populations have uh, bigger problems than this uh, in a lot of the areas where uh, these natural populations of Teosinte. The big problem is replacement of the uh, populations with. Uh, uh, introduce uh, uh, grass uh, grass crops that are grown uh, for uh, uh, cow feed, etc. Um, that is up for debate, uh, and this is my personal <laughs> my personal uh, opinion. Um, Would you like me to skip to Anna Stepanova's question to read it out loud? Oh yes, so Anna, Anna asks uh, how uh, how many plants need to be grown uh, at once. So uh, Stimit has done uh, quite a bit of uh, research on these. Um, so whenever a particular accession is collected, uh, that uh, implies somebody going to a, a, a to a, a farmer's field and collecting uh, a few uh, a few years of corn, right? And that's then taken to the uh, to Senate, where it's a store. Um, when uh, the, the the amount of seed from that particular accession uh, is reduced, or they also uh, make a germination test, it's time to regenerate the seed. And then what they try to do, Anna, is they they try to produce. Uh, they plant the seed and they make a, a plant to plant a, a crosses, and they try to get uh, at least a hundred years to uh, maintain the, the 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 amount of genetic diversity. That was uh, a capture uh, when that accession was uh, was collected. Uh, again, others uh, the, 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 there is uh, there is a lot of discussion there, uh, and others would tell you that it would be better to uh, for the same amount of uh, space and money to grow less less accessions, produce less uh, less years, or uh, uh, to grow more accessions in the same uh, amount of space. Uh, and produce uh, less year uh, less years per uh, per accession. So this is a this is an active debate on uh, on germplasm uh, curators, etc. Uh, Jason. So Jason says that the complexity it's more common the complexity of genetic diversity in maize would seem to make it unmanageable to some degree through biology. Following North's statement, if we care about genetic diversity of maize, maybe we need to focus on supporting and maintaining cultural diversity with attention to the relationship between culture and agricultural practice. I agree, uh, Jason. Um, I was just uh, having a discussion the other day uh, with uh, with Jim exactly about this. What is the best? What it would be the best way to uh, to maintain this uh, uh, diversity? Uh, there is a lot of uh, discussion of whether uh, ex situ versus uh, uh, in situ uh, is the best uh, approach. And, and Jim was suggesting, and, and, and I agree with him, that maybe the best thing that USDA could do is just pay uh, uh, small uh, uh, farmholders, campesinos across uh, different countries uh, in the in, in Latin America to just uh, keep uh, growing and uh, evolving and adapting to the new uh, environmental uh, conditions uh, all this uh, genetic material. Okay, I, I think that we've reached our one o'clock time limit and you actually were you actually answered all of the questions right on time. So thank you very much, Dr. Ruben Rayan Alvarez for drinking from the maize diversity fire hose. We appreciate you coming this week. Thank you. Thank you all.